Welcome back, everybody, to the Drink and Learn podcast. I'm drinks historian Elizabeth Pierce. Hello. How are you? I'm Abigail Gullo, bartender at New Orleans. And we are coming to you live from um, the old number 77 hotel. We are in another beautiful studio room designed by a local New Orleans artist and enjoying the sun fighting its way through some mellow clouds here on this summer sultry day in New Orleans. Yeah, um, I'm a fan when the sun is fighting the clouds because that means it's overcast and it isn't like blaring down and melting your face off. This time of year in New Orleans, it can sometimes feel like you're trying to walk on the surface of the sun if the sun is out in full force. So, um, So we don't mind these overcast days at all. Yeah, although, of course, what makes it cool, at least for a little bit, is when it rains. But when it stops raining, then it is a sauna. Um, When I was in Montreal a couple of years ago, I was trying to explain to people what New Orleans felt like in the summer. And they have this thing that you can go visit. It's like a zoo, but it's inside, and it's called the Biodome. Oh, yes. Yeah, and when you walk through it, you start in tropical land and you end up in like almost arctic Uh, you kind of make your way through all of the environments of the world and i i've told people if you want to know what new orleans is like just go to tropical and stay there (laughs) (laughs) and then i thought like oh wow it'd be really cool to have some kind of um like a fancy dinner or a, a bar, like a pop-up bar in tro- in the tropical section during winter. Like if I was in Montreal in February, I would I would just go to the tropical and like hang out with the frogs. I bet that'd be good for you. Alligators. I don't know why we don't do that more. Like I know in the middle of the summer, I have my pool here in New Orleans, but I also work in a restaurant with a glorious walk-in. And there are times when I get off my bike and I just step into the walk-in for a little bit before I put my clothes on. <laughs> and it's more, it's like, wow, this is like a wonderful way to acclimate myself to the air conditioning. <laughs> so I actually heard that post-Katrina, after after Katrina, not immediately after, but as the city was coming back, um, because, you know, 80% of the city flooded, all of the houses were not fixed immediately. It took months and and years Years. and so there were people who came back and and had a job because a a restaurant is open or or a bar is open um but their house was still a wreck and they were you know in the process of fixing it so um i heard tales of lots of activity happening in (laughs) walk-ins in restaurants (laughs) A little smooching and a little more uh, because people's houses were still really hot and un- unair conditioned. But the walk in, you got plenty of room. So maybe it's a little private if it's like early before service. <laughs> That's what I think of. Well, if I you've ever of. seen the movie Do the Right Thing and what it's like in the heat um, uh, and how you feel, how amorous you feel, just a. Uh, just think that I'm in a constant state of Rosie Perez in the summer. Okay, well that's a that's a good segue to our uh, to our drink, which is the margarita. Uh, the margarita. When we were talking about what you know what was going to be next, um, we decided to intentionally not release this uh, during Cinco de Mayo because I feel like that is when the worst margaritas happen. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the worst green beer happens during St. Patrick's Day. Is there good green beer? No. <laughs> but there are good margaritas. There can be great, great margaritas. Fantastic margaritas. We are in a golden age of, of margaritas, actually. I think we have been for a while. I think you might consider the well-made margarita to be the forebearer of the what we're seeing as the, the modern you know, tw- turn of the 20th, 21st century cocktail movement. Um, because it actually goes back to, you know, well-made margaritas started in the 90s. Oh, Absolutely. really? Absolutely. Um, who was doing the well-made margarita in the 90s? Well, Tommy's, who? for sure, in San Francisco, uh, which we will get to yeah. later. We'll have a big discussion about Tommy's. But I think there, if you go to a lot of Mexican restaurants in the 90s, 
you see them employing fresh lime juice mm-hmm. and um, and triple sec and um, tequila. And in the 90s, when you start to see more uh, 100% agave tequila as well. That becomes that is, a thing. That is the key. This is another one of those classic cocktails where it's three ingredients. So the ingredients you use really matter. The first of which being that fresh lime juice. And that's easily done at Mexican restaurants. Right, because they, they always have, have so many limes They have so anyway. many limes, yeah. yeah. And so when, when the um, production of uh, 100% agave tequilas starts to really become popular in the 90s, the only thing you're missing is triple sec. And that's, you know, again, that's an ingredient that you could go really high end or, you know, and a lot of people started ordering what they call Cadillac margaritas that mm. use Grand Marnier. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you've got three amazing <laughs> ingredients. You've got a delicious cocktail. That's funny because uh, I think Cadillac and I was just thinking it was big. <laughs> 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 well, I think they were pretty big too in yeah, the 90s. Like the a goblet. That's when the goblet comes yeah, out, right? That's okay. So, so let's um uh bring our listeners back. back. Yes. That's that's going back In our time machine. Uh maybe we need a time machine sound. I'll have to see if I can find that. Um to the uh to the the alleged historic well we we have some some legit historic origins of the um of a margarita tequila is not um a big part of the american drinking scene in the 19th century compared to say you know whiskey or rum or gin um and even into the 20th century um the first tequila cocktail gets mentioned in um, a book called My New Cocktail Book, which was gloriously printed uh, during Prohibition in 1930, which is, I think, a a great big nice F.U. to uh, the uh, 18th Amendment. Um, And then in 1937, you have this book called The Cafe Royal Cocktail Book, and um, this drink a drink called the Picador is mentioned, which lists the ingredients tequila, Cointreau, and lime juice, which, you know, does to margarita. And so a lot of people also argue that a margarita is simply a tequila sidecar with lime instead of lemon. And the sidecar has been around go, going back to the 19th century. So th- this combination of a sour citrus... Um, an orange liqueur and a spirit, if you're gonna. So that's sidecar. Uh, but also, there's uh, this drink called the Daisy, and yes. that the Daisy the has a name. Yeah, the, it's a category of yeah. drinks, actually. So the Daisy is important. Um, Abigail, uh, tell us about the the Daisy, or did I just describe it? You did. You did. Okay. You just described it. A Daisy is a um, category of drinks, much like how a cocktail that we've discussed earlier is bitter sugar. Uh, bitter sugar, spirit, and water. Uh, a daisy was citrus, orange liqueur, curacao of some sort, and and spirit. So you could have a gin daisy, whiskey daisy, brandy daisy. Got a name. And did the, the sidecar. did the citrus was it lemon or lime or could you use lemon orange? or lime? Okay, uh, uh, citrus was very often interchangeable. I think in those early recipes because it really depended on what you got your hands on. No, but I mean, like, could, would seasonal. you use a would you use an orange? Because that would change the the flavor profile considerably. Yes. yes. Well, that's what you would use the orange in the liqueur. Um, okay. So yeah. you wouldn't use the orange citrus. The, the citrus is either lemon or lime. Yeah. A lot of the the use of citrus is, um, is that sour note. And mm-hmm. you, while you do use orange and grapefruit for some of their kind of sour notes, both of them have a, a certain amount of sweetness that really swing the drink a lot. Mm-hmm. So when people are using that citrus for the straight sour effect they're usually talking lemon and lime and there's distinct differences the i believe the lime has like one additional kind of sour component on your palate that triggers it mm. um there's definitely a nerdy way to describe it that i'm just not coming to right now well, there's if probably, i do research i might come back there's probably some chemical like it is if you're is. if you're listing all of the pheno whatever i i have had dave arnold make me Who's like, Dave Arnold? Um, 
he is the guy in New York who does who's like the super kind of mad scientist about these things. Okay, he invented like the the superfuge thing, and I'm really not making sense right <laughs> I now. I wish you could see her hands because they're uh, explaining <laughs> uh, visually. I am what the is a centrifuge? Is centrifuge? Yeah, yeah, the thing that like separates the stuff. Exactly. Okay, and he had this bar called Booker and Dax in New York that would use like red hot iron pokers to plunge it into a drink to make like an instant kind of toddy. Mm -hmm. Um, He he was the first to kind of really get scientific about uh, the flavor profiles that go in. And he he has this um, kind of citric acid component that he will add to lemon juice to make it taste like lemon juice. Okay. And he does does like a lot of experiments on stuff like that. And I went to a seminar that he did in Mexico City uh, about that. So if if you're interested in that nerdy side of it, please look up Dave Arnold, get his get his book. But he's definitely he is the Mister Wizard of the cocktail world. Um, Dave Arnold's book is called Liquid Intelligence: The Art and Science. Of the perfect cocktail. Oh, that's who that guy is. Yeah, this is okay. this is a bible I'm, among the the nerdiest of us bartenders. I knew the book. I didn't. I just didn't know his name. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I speaking of us uh, getting our continuing education, I just went to a citrus symposium last well, weekend. Was it was great, and my talk was very well received on the history of lemonade, which is much more interesting than you would think. And I learned all about the myriad of citrus that has, well, first of all, like the origins of citrus and the myriad of citrus that has been grown in southern Louisiana. But when you're talking about, you know, you don't really use the orange because it's, an orange is sweet and you're already getting the sweet and orange from the triple sec. But there are all of these great sour oranges that really are even old, kind of older than the um the sweet the sweet orange gets um grown out of you know um you know how when you are breeding plants and you like uh you choose the sweeter fruit so that you can propagate that but this seville orange and and there's more than one kind there's seville and then there's like other kinds and there's one that's called trifolate that has been grown in new orleans since the 18th century and it has um it's often used as a hedge because it's so thorny. But a lot of people in the audience talked about that they had trifolate in their in their yard because it smells beautiful. Mm. So it's ornamental. But it's also used, um, it's very hardy, and so they'll graft a sweeter fruit onto the base uh, or the trunk or whatever and because that, that helps it kind of get started. And, and I know this because I accidentally grew the trifolate in my yard and then tried to eat it and it was a trifolate or it was a lemon anyway it was terrible and I was like no this tastes bitter and awful but then I thought oh this could be actually very interesting in a drink and the Seville orange um, and bitter oranges like that that would be very interesting a sour orange in a drink would totally work. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a there's a kind of golden ratio when it comes to making drinks and balancing the sweet and sour with the alcohol. And that's that's what all of these kind of a lot of these original recipes kind of played with. And like you said, the magic is finding the right sweet, the right sour, and um, the right spirit. And there's something really special about the margarita and how all those flavors come together. So the daisy, which is a category, Mm -hmm. the reason that it matters that you know that daisy is a category is because the Spanish word for daisy is margarita. Oh, I know. And when when people argue about who invented the margarita, I'm I'm always just like, oh my God, you guys, (laughs) it's really, it's, it's there. Of course, of course there are people that claim and we're about to discuss them, but Mm -hmm. let me just go on the record and say for once and for all, the Spanish word for Daisy is margarita and a margarita is a tequila Daisy. And that's all there is to it. If you were a bartender working at the time and and wanted to grab something new and tequila was something new, it was kind of frowned upon, it was kind of dismissed as not being very good. But let me tell you, I'm sure the 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 bartenders in the in the southern part of these Americas definitely 
latched on to something delicious. Well, here's the story that the um, Mexican uh, newspaper believes asserts is true. And actually, Abigail, I believe it not so much that in quote unquote inventing the margarita, uh, because as you said, a margarita is a a tequila daisy. So this is a thing that could exist. Mm -hmm. But as far as giving it this name and promoting it, this origin story sounds legit. And it comes from this really great interview that was in Texas Monthly Magazine in 1974. And they interviewed Pancho Morales, who worked at a bar called Tommy's Place in Juarez, Mexico, during World War II. And he um, catered to American GIs. So one of the things that um, in in other places where people get grumpy and say, you can't invent a, a cocktail in Mexico, Mexico doesn't have a cocktail culture, I say... Look at the bars in Paris and in London that catered to either soldiers or expats. You're you're mixing drinks for your clientele. And if you're in Juarez where you can like see America, you know, El Paso's like right there, then and most of your clientele is Americans, then you make the drink that they want. So uh, a former co-worker described Pancho as the best in Juarez and in all of Mexico, which I don't know about that, but it means that he was very respected. And he also taught the Union Bartenders School in Juarez. So look for the Union label. Yes, um, so as you can imagine, if you are an American soldier and you are going to get sent off to World War II and possibly die then you have money to burn in your pocket and you're going to spend it on alcohol. And a lot of bartenders are frequenting uh, this bar called Tommy's Place. And I'm, I'm emphasizing Tommy's Place because this is important so, to distinguish it from another Tommy's later. Uh, so allegedly, well, according to Pancho, a lady came in and she ordered a Magnolia. And he says, and this actually, this sounds completely believable bartenders don't like to admit when they don't know what a drink is and he remembered that the magnolia contained cointreau and lime and booze but he couldn't remember which booze and he didn't want to ask her so he made it with tequila and she's i gave he says i gave it to her and she says oh no this is not a magnolia but it is very good And I said, oh, I thought you said a margarita. And he says, because Daisy in Spanish is a margarita. And then he says, I was called it the margarita because I was thinking of the flower margarita, which means he's thinking of the daisy. Mm -hmm. And a daisy is tequila, lime, or a daisy, tequila daisy is tequila, lime, and Cointreau. And she liked it, and that's how it originated. Pretty soon she ordered another one, and someone said, hey, what's that? And he also talks about how he always put signs up of what his drinks were. So he begins advertising this drink called the margarita. And um, his original recipe for the margarita was recorded on a stack of old bar tabs and they had pre-printed and this is what I was showing you they had the they had pre-printed blank comma 1940 blank so you would just fill it in with the customer's name and the date but it was 1940 something you know and the recipe is juice of one lime, four-fifths tequila, one-fifth Cointreau, salt outside rim of a three-ounce glass. And then he later uh, says it's better with two-thirds tequila, one-third Cointreau, because 1942 Cointreau is much heavier tasting than the current um, versions. And it takes off and eventually crosses the border. And that is how... Pancho Morales argues uh, or asserted that he invented the margarita in the 1940s during World War II. What do you think about that? I think that makes perfect sense to me. 
Because he talked about a flower. Yep. Talking about a flower. Talking about mixing good stuff together. And making signs. And making signs is, hey, that's key. I have I have some I happen to have a couple of drinks at my bar that have a very distinctive look to them and when people see them they're like what's that that's our new sign wait what like what do you mean it's a distinct like you put oh you just put the drink out when, yeah when the drink goes out like in a giant copper bunny people are like right. what's the copper bunny drink <laughs> like it's a drink called the copper bunny you should get it <laughs> oh you want to know a nice little side note about Pancho Morales. Mm. He married a woman named Margarita Aww. in 1956. Oh, my goodness. And so for a long time, people thought he named it after his wife. Yeah, yeah. Which is really adorable. He but later... he didn't her until... Right, and he made the... After uh, he invented the drink. Yeah, and... Or I, I would say, how about this? After he named the drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the drink existed already. After he named he it. He named it. And... Translated. Um, after he translated tra- Right, right, right. <laughs> and uh, he eventually moves to El Paso... And he becomes a milkman. Mm-hmm. He delivers the milk, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, yeah, maybe he got tired of working behind the bar. You know? I know. Yes, that happens. <laughs> but you want to, want to know what his favorite drink was? What his go-to is? Milk punch? No, scotch and water. Oh, how very American of him. Yeah, in the, in the 1950s, for yeah, sure. Yeah, that's 60s. very American. Yeah. One of the other uh, stories, which I'm not going to tell in detail because it's stupid, is that a socialite, an American socialite, invented the drink? Um, but I don't really know a lot of American socialites that are mixing cocktails at their party. That's what you have servants for. This sounds like Winston Churchill's mother kind of false narrative. Oh, right. What did, uh, did she invent in the martini? Manhattan. So, Manhattan. Oh, the Manhattan. Right, right. She did not. <laughs> <laughs> Long story short, no. So that So the drink really popularizes tequila. And I have one fun fact that you will chuckle at. In 1951, Mexico exported 5,500 gallons of tequila to the United States. That's very little. In 2017, do you want to take a guess? Oh, it's got to be in the millions. 17 billion liters of tequila. 17 billion liters of tequila. Gosh, and that's just to the U.S. We are, we are. Although, if you look at the chart, we're the number one person. Yeah, by by considerable amount. This is why it's important to be friends with them, my dears. I mean, we have access to all that beautiful tequila. If you have to, if you have to rate, get the tequila over a wall. Like I have so a vision. I have a vision of like. A person with a bucket, you know, or a basket, you know, you like lower the basket down and then it's like, here's one bottle, two bottles maybe in the basket and then you like roll it up and then hand it over. It's very inefficient. I think in reality, they, they're probably going to put big tariffs now on that tequila, which, you know, rightfully they, they should. Mm -hmm, Let me mm -hmm. take a moment here to discuss the actual production of tequila which is extremely labor-intensive, unsustainable, and um, very, very difficult. And I think we take it for granted. Um, For a long time, the tequila we got in this country was um, mixto tequila, which means it was um, mixed with other blended, if you were, with other lesser uh, grade quality distilled spirits. The system that we now get... Blanco tequila from is heavily regulated by the Mexican government. They have a denomination of origin for their tequila. It has very specific rules in how it's produced, where it's produced, um, and how it's bottled. And there's a lot of care and love that goes into this production. I think we kind of take it for granted. I think tequila is priced still kind of on the low end. Tequila and particularly mezcal, priced low for the amount of labor and work and care and love that goes into the production of this spirit. It's it, it, it's a bit of a moral issue for bartenders now sometimes, in particularly with mezcal and the population, um, the popularity of that particular type of spirit. It's raising a lot of ethical questions as well. When you say that it's unsustainable, is that because a, um, the plant takes so long to grow? Not only does the plant take a long time to grow, but once you harvest it, that's it. It's done. When you decide to harvest an agave plant, you can't replant it. It takes 
it's not it's not like 12 corn. years is not like corn it takes 12 years to grow this plant which by the way is not in the cactus family it's actually in the lily the lily family it, it looks like a giant aloe plant tequila uses one specific species called blue weber agave and when it is harvested that you cannot use a machine to harvest it men called hemidors go out with this giant kind of half moon shaped blade and physically cut them the spines by hand and when they cut them down the kind of the base and bulb of the plant looks like a pineapple so that's why they call it a piña and then the piñas are taken to a facility where they are roasted for three days sometimes Um, sometimes they're put in kind of a giant pressure cooker and when they're cooked it kind of the smell and the and the consistency is kind of like um roasted pumpkin and then um the piñas that are softened from all this cooking and roasting are then um, shredded and the juice is kind of squeezed out and it is that juice that they use to distill the tequila product from a lot of times it's um it's not distilled more than once or twice kind of three times at the most and it's refined and it is um sometimes uh sits in stainless steel tanks before it's bottled sometimes it's run through a barrel very briefly before it's bottled and then and then if it's bottled for longer or barreled for longer it becomes a reposado or an añejo reposado means rested which means it's rested for um, up to a year. And yeho means year, which means it's rested for a year or longer. The juice is so delicate that it really picks up the barrel very quickly. Mm. There's not a market for 15-year-old aged tequilas like there are for 15-year-old scotches. You just can't leave it in that long. It, it loses all its flavor. Well, the other thing, too, about obviously about barrel, 15-year-old scotch... You need heat for it to go into the barrel, and it's freezing in Scotland. As somebody who was just there recently in the summer, <laughs> uh, so fifteen-year-old, uh, uh, and same thing with rum too, right? Like you don't really yeah. get the super and aged, I, honestly, uh, from from warm climes. It may be controversial, but I feel that way about Ryan Bourbon too. I mean, I really don't see a lot of use for super old. Yeah, uh, I like because Kentucky's still warm. Yeah, oh, very warm. It's very cold in the winter, but very warm mm. in the summer. Yeah. And I, I like my whiskey like I like my men, a little bit on the younger side. <laughs> but le- still legal. But With still the- legal, of course. <laughs> yeah, actually, make that your full tagline, on the young side, but still legal. <laughs> Where they get the stamp, right? They come with the stamp that the... Uh, that their tax has been paid. Okay, we'll just Even beat, tequila, beat that metaphor. The aging of tequila only only came about because they were trying to appeal to American palates, as America is the mm-hmm. largest consumer of tequila. So yeah. they were trying to get that scotch-drinking, aged rum-drinking, aged whiskey-drinking crowd by um, by putting that in. And in fact, if you look at oh, gold tequilas, if you guys see a gold tequila and it doesn't say 100% agave, they're trying to kind of mimic that fancy idea, but it's a mixed dough and it's not very good. You know, mm-hmm. Another brief moment of, of if you are tasting tequila on its own, again, this is just some like basic lesson stuff. You know how in those college days when you do a shot of gold tequila and you have lime Abigail's and, making a really gross face and right now salt and you're supposed to like suck on the lime and lick the salt and there's this whole ritual that goes with tasting this bad tequila well let me tell you if you do a tasting of pure 100% agave blanco tequila you taste you taste that first of all you, you do taste that kind of roasted pumpkin flavor of the roasted agave you taste a green kind of salinity that's all salty that you get from like the sea air you taste a kind of beautiful verde citrus kind of limey notes to it too so that whole procedure of the lime and the salt and that ritual is really just to make bad tequila taste like good tequila does in your mouth in Mm -hmm. your palate a Mm -hmm. good tequila will do all of that good tequila you don't need the lime you don't need the salt you can just have that run across your palate and get all of those flavors and more. So I have, I have a real passion for beautifully made, pure, 100% agave tequila. And it was one of the first things, like as a young bartender, when people ask me what, what's, what makes this so good, I would say the tequila, the tequila. It has to say 100%. So this is my lesson to you guys. If you guys are going out shopping for a bottle of tequila, it's going to cost more. And I hope I've stressed from the production of it that it should cost more. It is a handmade 
beautifully crafted project product. You can't go in and spend less than $20 on a bottle of really, really nice tequila. Just be prepared for that. It's And it just on, on the bottle, it has to, by law, say 100% pure agave. If it says that, then you're good. You're good. So speaking of the salt, um, one other thing that Mr. Morales said in this interview that I thought was interesting is um, he said, I put the salt, but not the way these bartenders do now. Now they get a dish full of salt. They rub the lime and they stick the glass in the dish. They put too much salt. The idea is to get the three ounce glass, and three ounce glass is really it's a really small, teeny tiny, really small glass, and rub it. Then take the salt shaker and you twirl it around and shake the salt on the outside of the rim. I always teach them that. So I was thinking about when I've gotten. Because I generally ask for no salt or maybe salt at like half the you know half the rim, so then I can get a little if I want. But it it arrives like caked, mm-hmm. like I'm a deer, <laughs> and I'm, I need a salt lick, <laughs> a deer who likes tequila. But this is so light. It is. It's it, very light. I we we have a policy at our bar that it's always a half rim. Um, whenever somebody asks for salt or sugar or whatever, it's always a half worm, so you could choose. Um, but our policy for margaritas is our standard is no salt. Mm-hmm. Is um, um, it's almost like you could just take your salt shaker and just shake it on top of the drink, mm-hmm. like just have that little the way that that chefs do that the finishing the finishing salt. a little finishing salt exactly. Yeah. That's that's why this drink is you kind of led to something really kind of interesting is that it is a very culinary cocktail. It's, there's so many great flavors that are happening because of that beautiful tequila and that balance of the sweet and the sour that, um, and that a little finishing salt the way a chef would do just sounds just, just about right. Well, speaking of, why don't we follow you to your bar and uh, go learn how to make a proper margarita? All right, let's go make a margarita, y'all. So, folks, we're here with Abigail Gullo at the bar at Compare Le Pen, and we're going to learn how to make a margarita. A margarita. Again, this is one of those drinks that, like, you don't have to overthink this drink, and you do not have to resort to margarita mix. Let me tell you what's in margarita mix. A lot of chemicals, uh, high fructose corn syrup, yellow dye, number four. And disappointment. So much disappointment. People who have had a bad experience with tequila, it's usually because they've drank too much margaritas made with bad sour mix, and also they've used poor quality tequila. Now, luckily, we are living in a golden age of tequila. There's plenty of good tequila around, but you don't have to go super fancy. You don't have to get super expensive. Just make sure your tequila says 100% agave. That's all you need to worry about. If it's 100% agave in a margarita, it's perfectly fine. So... Um, that's still at the liquor store going to cost you a little bit more than your Jose Cuervo, but it's going to make a huge difference in the drink. So really don't skimp on that. Get your 100% agave tequila. Now, whether you buy a $80 or a $30 in a margarita, it's basically going to be the same. You don't have to stress about that. Okay? Okay, let's go. All right. So two ounces of a 100% agave. Um Tequila, blanco. Um, you can use a reposado. Reposado means rested, and that means it's rested for under a year, in, usually in bourbon barrels, although there's this beautiful brand called Alexia that I love that rests it in cognac barrels, and it's really soft and floral and gorgeous. Um, but this is just a blanco, which means it's usually not rested at all. Sometimes it can be rested just like a couple of days, um, just to kind of mellow it out a bit. The next uh, important ingredient that you do not skim on is a real lime juice. And again, we're going to go one whole ounce of lime juice. So again, if you're batching this uh, you don't and you don't have an ounce measurer, this is a very, very simple drink because it's going to be two parts tequila, one part lime, and then the other thing that really makes it a margarita, one part Cointreau or orange liqueur. This is a drink that if you go to cheapest of the cheap, it's not going to be as great. Go a little bit better. Don't get your triple sec that's only like $6 a bottle. Go for something a little nicer. Clement Creole shrub. You know, it's a Martinique 
uh, orange liqueur, um, dry curacao from uh, Pierre Ferrand, or the real standard is uh, Cointreau. People like to use what they call Cadillac margaritas. Cadillac margaritas usually have a float of um, Grand Marnier on top. I feel like that's orange on top of orange. If you're going to make a Cadillac margarita with that float of Grandma on the top, I would make it more of a Tommy's margarita style. Tommy's margarita doesn't have orange liqueur, and instead it's kind of more like a daiquiri because it uses a little agave nectar instead, about a half an ounce of agave nectar, lime, and tequila, and that's it. If you've ever had a skinny girl margarita, that's essentially what that is too. Um, So if someone asks for a skinny girl margarita, I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever, that's easy. Just a Tommy's margarita, and it's still very delicious, particularly the agave. It's just a natural mix in a margarita, and it's delicious. But a real classic margarita um, has an orange liqueur in it. So we're using Cointreau today, one ounce of Cointreau, and shake that up really hard over ice. For a standard margarita, I like to serve this on the rocks. No salt. Um, But some people prefer uh, a little salt in the rim. They're used to it. That's fine. But my standard kind of pour is just simple like this. A little lime wheel garnish and your beautiful margarita on the rocks. Thanks, Abigail, for teaching us how to make a margarita. Okay, so that is the kind of standard historic a traditional, whatever word you want to use, mm-hmm. um, margarita. But there's another margarita that um, a lot of bartenders, I, I've been seeing it on on menus and people talk about, and that is Tommy's margarita. Um, and and this is a this is a really different, it seems to me, flavor profile uh, than the regular margarita. Um, Abigail, what's up with Tommy's Margarita? Um, Tommy's Margarita was created by um, bartender Julio Bermejo. Um, He worked at a restaurant in San Francisco that was opened up by his parents, Elmi and Tommy Bermejo, in 1965. Um, so this has, they just celebrated their 50th anniversary. They're doing really, really well. They didn't even have a liquor license until 1972, and when they did, their bar was looked like a lot of other bars. It had, you know, liqueurs and gins, and they probably made some Harvey Wallbangers, I'm guessing, (laughs) this being the 70s. (laughs) That's what I think 70s drinks. I'm like, Harvey Wallbanger, of course, that's what everyone was drinking, right? Yeah. And Tom Collins, right? And Yeah, oh yeah, Tom Collins. But Julio was always looking for a way to make his bar stand out. One of the ways he did that was um, in the late 1980s, he did what a lot of us bartenders did to get excited about the spirit. He started visiting tequila distilleries. And it was in those visits to the distilleries that he discovered this byproduct that they sometimes make called agave nectar. And it's a sweetener. And um, it's a very delicious sweetener. And it has, people argue it has some like lower hypoglycemic indicators so it's kind of more natural sugar that your body processes differently and it reacts differently and and it I I find it a little sweeter than Mm. like a simple syrup or Mm -hmm. sugar so I can use a little less Tommy found it a little expensive so he mixed it with a little simple syrup and used that instead of orange liqueur in their house margarita Um, because he really uh, like many of us did fell in love with the production and the craft that goes into making um, tequila and he wanted this he said it felt like a natural of course combination to use this agave nectar as a sweetener in their house margaritas so if you've paid attention to the daiquiri I was just thinking it's a tequila daiquiri if, if you've paid attention to our, our idea of classification drinks and daiquiri and daisy being two different classifications what he did was essentially turn his margarita back into a daiquiri but how appropriate to use the agave because the daiquiri is made from sugar cane I mean sorry the rum is made from sugar cane so it uses its sugar and the tequila using the agave sugar it like of course they're going to talk nice to each other Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, he, he, he stumbled upon that, that magical combination of what mm-hmm. made a daiquiri so good, and this is what makes his margarita so delicious. So it, it, starting in the early 90s, when you could get good 100% agave tequilas, of course, he started doing that because he knew 
that if you're using 100% agave tequila, if you're using agave nectar, if you're using fresh lime juice, you are making an exceptional drink. And that's what he did. So this restaurant in San Francisco became a um, mecca for a lot of people in the industry who are looking for something new and different. And I really, I credit this restaurant for jump-starting a mixology scene in San Francisco in particular. Really, that's all it takes is one person, one innovator. I think for New York, it was probably Dale DeGroff. I hesitate, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure people would argue there was a lot, there was a lot of people in San Francisco making really good drinks, but Tommy, Tommy's Margarita by Julio uh, was an exceptional drink you can get in San Francisco, and he used a lot of the tools that us modern kind of bartendery things use, which is going to the distillery, finding your passion for it, finding the love for it, finding the ingredients that would make it just right, and then bringing it back to share. And to this day, this restaurant functions. You can get a delicious Tommy's Margarita there. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get a lot of uh, beautiful tequilas. They have, of course, a, a huge list of tequilas that you could try there and try them in different margaritas. Fast forward to the uh, early... The rain has come. I don't know if y'all just heard that thunder. Ooh, we got a summer rainstorm on my hands here. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but f- flash forward to t- the 2000s and you have what some people call the skinny girl margarita. That's essentially Tommy's margarita. It uses agave nectar. I said a lot of people have kind of clung on to that as a sweetener. You can get agave nectar a lot of places now. People put it in their coffee. They use it for different you things. You don't just have to go to Whole Foods to get the agave. This is true. This is true. So yeah, the, this when a lot of people ask me for a skinny girl margarita, I say, well, you know, that has a name, actually. That's Tommy's. That's Tommy's <laughs> margarita. So cycling from the skinny girl or a, a super, we can say refined, classic margarita, let's hop on the uh, margarita train and end up at the frozen margarita. We've all had one at some point or another. Uh, varying degrees of quality. My um, first one was swirled with frozen sangria oh, at a Mexican restaurant. Yeah, they do in a that. frosty mug with a big palm tree swizzle stick, and it was like my favorite, mm-hmm. my favorite drink when I was underage. How did we get to the frozen margarita? Well, there's this guy named Mariano Martinez, who is a Texas restaurateur, and in 1971 began serving frozen margaritas to the customers in his restaurant, Mariano's Mexican Cuisine. And before we get to how it becomes this thing, you should know he did not invent frozen drinks. And frozen drinks, blender drinks, are they still called blender drinks, like in this classic kind of Cuban uh, thing? Yes, I'd say in, in the classic Cuban sense of the world, absolutely, Cuban drinks. Blender drinks. We're not gonna get into who invented, who decided, you know what, I'm going to put some ice in this blender and then put my drink in there. But it definitely started somewhere hot, right? Nobody nobody in Scotland's like, you know what we need? (laughs) (laughs) But um, this idea of making a frozen alcoholic beverage is something that is popularized in Cuba um, and then makes its way to the United States if you listen to the Daiquiri episode. And if you haven't, go back and listen to the Daiquiri episode. We've referenced it twice now. <laughs> and uh, so it, it starts to become a thing. Well, it's real hot in Texas, and he he can't keep up because all they got is a blender. Maybe they had a couple of blenders. And so he and his friend tinker with a soft-serve ice cream machine to turn it into a large-scale margarita maker. And the reason that we know that this is the the prototype or one of the earliest ones and why Mr. Mariano gets credit is it is in the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. So along with Julia Child's kitchen and there's a bunch of flags from like the American Revolution. <laughs> And other important things, you can see uh, the prototype of the frozen margarita-making machine. God bless America. You know, that's funny that it's not a daiquiri machine. It's really a margarita machine. Yeah. And then, of course, everybody who uh, lives somewhere hot is like, 
we don't just have to do margaritas. See also <laughs> frozen sangria. <laughs> yeah. And you, so I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the logistics as a bartender because you have two, right? You get, yes. Yeah, I have two. a double, I have a double machine, a frosty factory. And uh, I really liked playing with this machine. I was really intimidated by it at first and a little nervous and it has since become one of my favorite tools to create cocktails in because, uh, first of all, it's very forgiving. Um, if you want to tweak a recipe one way or the other, it's not like you're, you can be off by a quarter of an ounce. You know, there's definitely uh, a lot of play I have in creating batch cocktails. Second of all, it's a, it's basically a batch cocktail. I create a whole bunch at a time, like uh, eight quarts at a time, and then pour it into a machine. And um, it it. it, it I'm amazed that sometimes we have a difficult time uh, keeping up, even like batching it and filling it and keeping it frozen because they are really, really popular drinks. Especially now. Especially now. And I'm really, really happy about that because I feel like I'm carrying on a nice New Orleans tradition. And now I know it's an American tradition. Mm -hmm. And um, I often have tequila in that machine as well. Right now we have a drink called the Sacred Spring that is based on a cocktail that two of my bartenders had in Mexico City. They had this cocktail that used um, Aperol and orange and tequila and lime. And they said, they brought it back and said, we think this would be great frozen. And they are correct. It is a fantastic frozen cocktail. I think it's important that we note that the inventor of the frozen margarita machine's last name is not Smith or Jones. um, But his name is Martinez. And... Uh, given what Abigail just said about her new drink, lots of delicious conversations are being held across uh, the American American Mexican border. Yes, indeed. and facilitating those conversations is always a good idea. It's always delicious, delicious Absolutely. results. Next step, I'd like to go across the border and meet with Justin Trudeau on uh, maple syrup cocktails, please. Uh, well, now is the time to go. We need to reach out is, to our neighbors in Canada. Oh, no, I, I, I didn't mean politically. I just meant uh, temperate. Now is the time to go to Canada in June. Um, I have a dear friend who lives in Montreal, and uh, I get to hear all about Canada in February with lots of sad face emojis. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm down with uh, heading up there and we can do some tastings. Maybe we can do for maple syrup and rye whiskey what um, what Julio did for agave and tequila. Yeah, there. <laughs> um, so this got silly. This got silly, and we didn't even have any margaritas. <laughs> drinking coffee. We're not drinking margaritas this morning, I, which I think is a shame, and I think we need to go rectify that. Okay. Well, now we can with lunch. Yes. And and that's you know what that's going to be another um, another episode is the three martini lunch. Bring yes. back, bring it even, back. Even though I don't like martinis, but and we, the, we the should, three something, three and, Manhattan lunch, and honestly, bring back that three ounce glass to put those three martinis in, yes. and we'll all be so much better. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Abigail, I think it's time for you to share your tip of the day. Um, tip of the day. Well, this is kind of connected to what we've been talking about the last two episodes, um, because the very important um, thing that both these cocktails, the margarita and the daiquiri have, is fresh citrus. So um, I need you guys to understand that when you walk into a bar, that not every bar has a great bar program. Not every bar has fresh citrus. It's expensive and labor-intensive. So it's not a thing that a lot of bars choose to do. We're talking about a very specific handful of bars that do fresh juice that can do these cocktails. And when you say great bar program, it doesn't mean that the bar that a, a bar isn't great. Not ba- at all. Yeah, bar program means a craft cocktail program that uses um, fresh citrus. Yeah, because there are great bars out there that oh, um, <laughs> that serve their beer in a can from a cooler behind the bar. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is not a, this is not, you need to have better bars. This is a, you need to just be a more observed bar goer. Um, please don't walk into a dive bar and ask them for a daiquiri or a margarita. If they don't have fresh fruit that's visible, this is probably not a place to order those drinks. This is a place, maybe you can get a really good old fashioned. Maybe you can great, uh, 
get a great shot and a beer. <laughs> yeah, because you. This can, is a good place for a, a scotch and water. Yeah, I was gonna say whiskey, whiskey and soda, mm-hmm. whiskey on the rocks, mm-hmm. or or whatever, blank on the rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, or or a beer, or a boiler maker. Mm-hmm. So so, uh, please. Please be aware of your surroundings when you're in a bar. If you see fresh fruit on a bar that bartenders are using for for peeling for um, to to express the oils on top of a drink, chances are you're in a bar where you're totally safe to order that. Or mint, right? Or mint, yeah. If you want to, if you see fresh mint, that's a good sign too. Um, I will say that I have been to a lot of Mexican restaurants that maybe they can't make a Manhattan. Um, but they sure can make a beautiful margarita. We have one here in town called um, uh, Felipe's that has a special teeny tiny lime squeezer for key limes. And every time you order a margarita, they do fresh key limes to order in your cocktail. I mean that. Yeah. That's a sign you're going to get a great cocktail. Right. And Felipe's is, yeah, you would not order a Manhattan there. Don't... uh just sweet sweeping generalization but probably good piece of advice don't get a manhattan at a mexican restaurant oh yeah yeah that makes sense get a margarita of some some version that we've talked about today yeah or maybe whatever they're uh they're offering cadillac pontiac (laughs) pontiac margarita (laughs) i don't know what that would be (laughs) all right there that's a that's a nice little segue for um for all of our listeners if anybody has an idea of what a Pontiac margarita would be. Yeah. What would, <laughs> Made in what Detroit, pon- right? What would your Pontiac margarita be? <laughs> then you can uh, tag us or at us, whatever, uh, on social media. I'm at Drink and Learn. And Abigail is? Um, I'm at Abigail Gullo, G-U-L-L-O. So you can uh, tell us what the Pontiac Margarita is. You can also email us with your answer or with questions. Cheers at drinkandlearn.com. And you have to spell out all the words, no ampersand. Um, we love to get questions, and we will certainly uh, answer them on future episodes. We will add that as another uh, segment. Um, so until then, go out and... Uh, Try and get yourself a good margarita. Yeah, have a good margarita. And um, don't forget to um, get some chips and salsa to go with that, too. Right. Got to eat. No drinking on an empty stomach. (laughs) That's another tip, but that's for later. (laughs) All right. Cheers, y'all. Thanks. Cheers. Drumming my six string On my front porch swing Smell those shrimp there Wasting away again in Margaritaville Searching for my lost sugar song Some people claim that there's a wall But I know Sure, but this brand new tattoo